You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, Last time that I was here preaching, we were looking at Jacob wrestling with God. Uh, This is some 20 years after he had cheated his brother Esau from, from his blessing and lied to his dad to secure the blessing, and he's run from home, and then he's having to deal with his past now about 20 years later. I say all that because today we're looking at Jacob's sons, who 20 years after selling their brother into slavery are now having to face their past. Just runs in the family. This family has a weird way of, of running from their problems, sort of suppressing their, their guilt about the things that they've done and just hoping that time will kind of make things go away. But it never works out that way. The past always catches up with them. And the same is true for us on both fronts. We have a way of suppressing our guilt and hoping time will just make it go away, but the past always catches up. One of the th- things that I love to get to do as part of my job is officiate weddings. Uh, did one last night, actually. But there's a weird thing that happens to pastors at weddings, or at least to me. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've experienced this. I'll be at a wedding, and it'll be at the rehearsal dinner or maybe at the reception after the ceremony, and just people I don't know who I've never seen before or since will come up to me, and they just want to talk about things. Sometimes it's just questions about God. That's great. I don't know anybody there anyway, usually, so it's fun to do that. Uh, One time, this young couple was talking to me about their marriage, like almost the entirety of the reception. And I say this couple, the woman was talking to me about their marriage. The guy didn't want to talk so much. Uh, He was standing there. But it turns out he just had all this stuff in his past that he didn't want to deal with, didn't want to talk about. And she wanted to deal with it right there at the reception. Sometimes people come up to me and just talk about the anxiety that's in their life. Uh, They'll talk to me about addictions they have. Sometimes they, they want to tell me the good things. Like sometimes, like last night, a woman came up to me and said, I just want you to know I start every day with devotions and praying and reading the Bible. Okay, thanks. I don't know why people feel the need to tell me those things. And as I've thought about it, I think, I think people are just carrying stuff around with them. Just carrying around guilt about little things and big things. And they don't know what to do with it. And so here's, here's a preacher man and a few beers. <laughs> so, so let's tell him now. Guilt has a way, no matter how much we try to push it down, it has a way of coming to the surface. And sometimes it comes out at weird times and weird places if we're not facing it squarely. Now, our culture tells us that guilt's bad. This is like a negative emotion that you should avoid, you should not feel guilty. I think when, our, when people say that, they're really talking about shame. Uh, they're very closely related. It's hard to sort out sometimes. Guilt, technically speaking, has to do with wrongdoing. So when you do something wrong, it's like objectively, morally wrong, or you don't do something that you know is right, you feel guilty, and that's a good thing. The world will be total chaos if that weren't true. Shame's different. Shame says, okay, because you've done something wrong, you're damaged goods now. You should run and hide. You don't deserve good things. And and that is a destructive uh, emotion that's very powerful in our lives. But guilt, like true guilt, is a good thing. It tells us that something has gone wrong. And it sets us on a path by which we can make things right. 
Now, the problem is that most of us don't want to go down that path because it's hard. And so we just keep trying to push it down and move on with our lives. That's what Joseph's brothers did. They, they sell their brother into slavery because they don't like him and they don't like that he's dad's favorite. And then they make up this story to dad. They lie to their dad about it. And then they cover the whole thing up and just move on with their lives. For 20 years, they just move on. Now, there's always this guilt, right? But they've, they've learned to manage it. Do you ever think that way? Like, as long as nobody knows, we're safe. As long as we can kind of manage life, it's, it's going to be okay. You ever think like that? Well, good news. God wants so much more for you than managing life, managing your guilt, managing your insecurities, managing your issues. God is not content for you to live that way. And so he does something about it. God wants to help us deal with our guilt so that we can be free from it and experience all the good things that come from that kind of freedom. That's what's happening in this story. From Genesis 42 to Genesis 44 is a story about how God enters into the to the lives of these ten brothers and Joseph and forces the issue, makes them deal with their guilt so that they can be free from it. It's a, it's a very intricately woven story, a very intricately woven plan on God's part, and so we're going to kind of pull out four aspects of what he's doing and look at them individually. These are just four ways that God works in our lives to bring us to a place where we can deal with our guilt and be set free from it. Now, I want to do this before we get into the four things. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis 42. Because we're looking at three chapters, we're obviously not looking at all of it, so I just want to give you a very quick overview so you can have a framework for where we're at as we go. So open up to Genesis 42. There's basically three cycles of the same thing that happen in Genesis. So the brothers leave Canaan, and they go to Egypt... And they appear before Joseph, and then they go back either to Canaan or toward Canaan. And that happens two and three-quarter times, and the last time they don't go back. All right, so beginning in Genesis 42, uh, Jacob tells the, the ten brothers to go to Egypt, because they've got to get food. So they go, and they appear before Joseph, and uh, Joseph tests them, and then sends them back to Canaan. But they have to bring Benjamin back. That's the test. So Genesis 43 picks up. They are going back to Egypt with Benjamin now. And again, Joseph tests them and sends them back to Canaan. And so now the brothers are going back to Canaan. But before they get very far, Joseph's men overtake them and they've got to come back to Egypt and appear before Joseph a third time. And then after the third time, the whole thing is resolved and we're not going to get to that part. That's next week. So, but that's basically what happened. Three trips to Egypt, back, Egypt, back, to Egypt. You got it? All right, now, let's look within that, that framework, let's look at the four ways that God works in their lives and in our lives to remind us of our guilt. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? He's not out to get you. It's for good purposes. Here's the first thing. Trials. God brings trials, difficult circumstances and hardships into our lives in order to make us reflect on our lives more thoughtfully. It's not the only purpose for trials in our lives, but it's one of the purposes. Uh, dealing with our issues is actually pretty scary for most of us. 
Like the life that God wants for us, uh, the Bible characterizes as walking in the light, but that means that we have to be willing to be seen as we really are, and most of us are terrified of that. Uh, it means letting go of control, which, which entails accepting the consequences for our sin and for who we really are. Most of us don't want to do that. And as long as life is reasonably comfortable, we won't do that. We will always settle for the path of least resistance. We'll just manage our lives. People live this way for years. Sometimes their whole lives they live this way. So one of the things that God does to force the issue is he makes things uncomfortable. He brings trials into our life because discomfort has a way of kind of shaking things up. It has a way of making us examine ourselves and turn our attention to God. I mean, when do people pray? When they're in need. When do people make their deals with God? When they're in a crisis. When is it that people often come to, like, get perspective on what really matters in life? It's when they've been through something that has completely rocked their world. God brings these trials in our lives to shake things up. We might think about our lives more reflectively. Nobody wants it, but God uses them for good. Now, with the brothers, he brings trials into the life. He's forcing them to deal with their past. And so, look at 41, verse 56. This is where we pick up. There's a famine that had spread all over the land. So Joseph, who had made a plan for this, opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, when Jacob, who's in Canaan learns that there's grain for sale in Egypt, he says to his sons, what are you guys just looking at each other for? So the writer's trying to help us see there's, there's still tons of like dysfunction in the family. They're starving. Everybody's just kind of looking around like, are you going to do anything about that? What? Jacob's like, get up! Go to Egypt! And he said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. That's our setting. Uh, the brothers, I think, had moved on with their life. Uh, I think things were dysfunctional, but they were making it work. Uh, but God, again, wants so much more for them, and so he's going to force the issue. Like, the, the mention of Egypt has always been a sore spot for them, because they know that's where, that's where Joseph was headed. And so anytime somebody mentioned Egypt, I think they were just like, change the subject, downplay And now, not only is dad talking about Egypt, he's making them go to Egypt. They have to face their past. It's going to be painful, but it's going to be for their good. This actually happens two more times, as I've mentioned. They have to go back to Egypt two more times. So every time they think that they're like done with Egypt and in the clear, they've got to go back. And one of the things that comes out in the story you realize is that, you know, you you can try to run from your past, But if you do, inevitably, God will have you just running in circles. He just cares about you too much. He wants you to face reality. So what are the places in your life that you don't want to go? You're just like, I'm not going there. Something in your past that you haven't told anybody. Some current struggle that you're keeping cover on some addiction, some secret, a broken relationship. Like, Just what are those places that when somebody mentions it, you're like, mm, no, you close up. <laughs> like, I'm not going there. 
Here's the first question the test wants to ask. Are you willing to go there? Listen, I, I say this from experience uh, and because I care about you. You can't escape it. You can run for a little while, but you will face it eventually. God will make sure of it. And his gracious invitation today is you can face it today. He stands ready to go there with you and bring healing in your life. That's the first thing, trials. Second one is consequences. These things are all very related, but consequences has to do with just like the direct results, the fruit of your wrongdoing. So when the brothers get to Egypt, they appear before Joseph. They don't know it's him. Uh, How could they possibly know that the guy that they're talking to is Joseph? Because the guy they're talking to is governor of the land. He's in charge of all the food, and all the world is coming to him to get food. There's no way this could be their little brother that they sold into slavery. But Joseph recognizes them. He knows it's them. Uh, Look at verse 6. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. So he knows who they are. He recognizes that they're his brothers, but he treats them like strangers. Uh, One of the reasons he does this is because he's going to test them. And so Joseph, from the get-go, is trying to figure out, I want reconciliation with these guys, but I don't know. I've got to figure out where they stand. I've got to know if they've changed at all in the last 20 years. I've got to know if I can trust them. And so he's going to run them through a series of tests. But behind the scenes of that, it's actually God is the one running them through these tests. And the first part of what God's doing is he's letting them experience the consequences of their sin. Joseph treats them harshly. He interrogates them. Uh, He accuses them. He he questions their integrity. He holds their brother Simeon as collateral until they bring Benjamin back. This This is not a good trip to Egypt. It's not going well. His harsh words and his treatment of them as strangers alerts us to something, and that is to the the brokenness of their relationship. Let's not overlook how sad this is. Brothers have become like strangers. It's awful. There was an article in uh, Forbes magazine that listed six signs that you may be dealing with guilt without knowing it. Uh, or not dealing with it, would you be suffering from guilt and don't know it? The number one sign on the list was an inability to have close relationships. Guilt totally messes with your relationships. If you're always trying to protect and cover and hide, how will you ever let somebody in enough to be close to them? And sure enough, as you get down the road with people, you'll find ways to jettison that relationship because the threat gets real. Forbes magazine is telling you this. So you know it's real. It's not just their relationship with Joseph, it's with their dad. We've already seen some of the dysfunction, but there's also still favoritism in this family. Why doesn't Benjamin go to Egypt with them? Because dad loves Benjamin more. And he distrusts them. He's afraid that harm is going to come upon Benjamin. And so there's this mistrust of the sons. And we see that throughout the story. It kind of gets greater and greater. The boys aren't right with dad. They're not right with each other. Uh, Never once in the narrative do you see the brothers saying anything kind to each other or doing something loving for one another. You do see them arguing and blaming each other for what happened. 
And of course, it affects their relationship with God. Our guilt affects how we see God. If we carry around guilt with us that we haven't dealt with, we tend to think that God's out to get us. Uh, Look at verse 21. This is one of the key verses in the story. Chapter 42, verse 21. After Joseph has treated them harshly and thrown them in jail for three days and bound up Simeon and told them to go get Benjamin, they start talking to each other in front of Joseph. Now, they don't think Joseph can understand them because he's been using an interpreter this whole time. He's coy like that. So, verse 21, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben jumps in, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen, so now here comes a reckoning for his blood. See, their guilt is messing with them. They think that they're being punished I think God is out to get them. Actually, they don't even mention God. They might just think the universe is out to get them. It's hard to know what they're thinking at this point. But even if they're thinking about God, they're thinking about him in a a way that he is vindictive and that he is out to get them, when in fact he's out to save them. But they can't see it because their guilt is clouding their vision of who God is. It's all coming to the surface now, and, and in part because they're having to experience the real consequences of their sin. From the brothers' perspective, things are not going well. They're just trying to come to Egypt to get food like everybody else in the world. And then all of a sudden, they're being interrogated and held custody, and they're like, man, what is, what is going on? Why all this misfortune? And they're starting to suspect maybe this has something to do with our guilt. At least they're thinking about it now. That leads to a series of tests. So God brings trials into our life. He lets us experience consequences, and he tests us in certain ways. He tests them by putting them in situations that seem eerily familiar. He puts them in all these situations that uh, they can't escape the coincidence of how it feels like the situation they had with Joseph. It brings all the painful emotions back up that they've been trying to push down. And so... If you'll remember, when they were in Dothan and Joseph was coming out to find them, they saw him coming from afar. That's when they plotted uh, their scheme against him. Now, Joseph is in Egypt and he sees them coming from afar. They're the vulnerable ones now. Uh, They were spoken to harshly just as they had spoken to Joseph harshly. They're in custody, helpless, just as Joseph was in the pit with no water. Uh, they have to go home to Jacob with one of the, without one of their brothers, without Simeon. And it, that is like the whole thing all over again, just as they had to go home before without Joseph and, and explain to Dad what's going on. They would have to do it again. And we, we've seen that these connections are not lost on them. They're seeing it. They're like, you know what? Truth is, we're guilty. And that's why all this stuff's happening to us. Their situation brings all the surface to the guilt I mean, all their guilt to the surface, and they can't push it down this time. So the whole ordeal, the whole thing is kind of one big test, but there are three specific tests that happen in this story. The first one is in uh, chapter 42, verse 15. They've said, we're we're 12 brothers, one of us home and one is dead, 
And Joseph's like, okay, well, let's see if you're telling the truth. If you're telling the truth, then go get the other brother and bring him back. And so he's testing their honesty. The second one is the end of Genesis 43, when Joseph's brothers come back with Benjamin. He throws this big feast for them, and he, and he shows favoritism to Benjamin. And he's testing their jealousy. Will this bother them like it bothered them that, that uh, dad gave me that cool coat back in the day? The final test is in Genesis 44, uh, where he keeps, threatens to keep Benjamin as a slave, uh, and he's testing their loyalty. Will they be loyal to, loyal to Benjamin, or will they sacrifice him like they did Joseph? Three tests. And you see what God's doing. They were jealous of Joseph, so they abandoned the family loyalty and sold him, and they lied about it to their dad. And now they're being tested. Their honesty, their loyalty, and their jealousy. Now, let me be clear. It's not the case that if they pass these tests, then it makes up for what they did. Nor is it the case that if they respond well in these situations, that it means they don't have to deal with their guilt and confess their sin. It's it's just the opposite. These tests are designed to bring them to a place where they can deal with their guilt. And that becomes a means by which they change their ways. This is how repentance works. When they respond well in these situations, it's a sign that they're on the path of repentance, and that's because God is bringing all this stuff to bear in their lives. In, uh, in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, uh, you remember Hamlet devises what he calls a mousetrap. And so he's trying to, he suspects his uncle has, uh, is guilty of murder. There's a ghost that's appeared to him to tell him that's the case, but he still doesn't know, if, do I come out and charge him? What if I'm not right? And so he devises this plan to, um, he arranges to have a play performed for him, or for his uncle, Claudius. And he, uh, the play reenacts the details of the murder that the ghost had told him. And as Claudius is watching it, he comes undone. And Hamlet says this, he calls it the mousetrap that will catch his conscience. And Claudius is in And look, there's all kinds of little mousetraps in our lives just as God is setting up for these guys. Like, have you ever uh, been in a gospel community discussion and a topic comes up that you've been bearing in your life and all of a sudden you just get real quiet? Has anybody ever asked you for advice or confessed something to you that you too are guilty of but you don't want to talk about and you just feel weird giving them advice on that? Parents knows what this feels like. I can't tell you how many times I have been all over my kids and as I am telling them, like, God's ways and what they're to do, like, it, I, it just is quick. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm them. And God has said these things to me a hundred times. No wonder they can't do it. I can't do it either. There's little mousetraps. And I think the thing that this story wants to surface in your life is like, look, when you feel like you've been caught, your conscience has been caught in some way by some circumstance that God's put you in, what do you do? Do you double down? Or do you come clean? Do you see God's hand in these things and that he's not out to get you? but out to save you. God tests us by putting us in situations that make us deal with our core issues. But there's something else about these tests that, that I don't think you would expect. And that is, that most of these tests involve some element of kindness and blessing. That's part of how God brings us to repentance. Uh, Paul says in Romans 2 that it's the kindness of the Lord 
that leads us to repentance. That sounds so weird, but let's see how that plays out. The first bit of kindness comes in uh, Genesis 42, 25. After he's told them, go back, get your little brother, I'll hold Simeon. He tells his stewards of his house to put the money that they gave him for the grain back in their sacks without them knowing it. He's blessing them. It's not vindictive. He's not setting them up. Uh, Later, when they bring all that money back, the steward says, no, your God put these money in your sack. And so the story indicates that this is just kindness from Joseph and from God. It's blessing. He wants them to have their money back. But when they discover the money, uh, they are terrified. So verse 28 says, uh, When one of them discovered the money at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Now, here is the first mention of God. They're afraid. They're like, oh my gosh, we have all this money. We're going to look guilty. We didn't even do this. I don't know how this happened. But notice how their view of God is distorted. They see God the same way they see Joseph. Like Joseph is this governor of the land. He's harsh. He's shrewd. He's out to get you. And that's how they see God. But the truth is, Joseph loves them. Three times throughout these stories, he has to go in another room so he can cry. So he can weep because of his love and his heart for his brothers. But they can't ever see that. And in the same way, they they cannot see God's heart for them. That his kindness toward them is meant to lead them to repentance. Instead, they're suspicious of it. They don't have a category for the kindness of God. Nevertheless, it's... God's kindness that leads them to acknowledge him for the first time. When they return to Egypt, so now they're back in the second time, they've got Benjamin with them, they appear before Joseph again, and Joseph's a totally different guy. First time he was harsh, he's yelling at them and interrogating them. This time he has his steward uh, give them water, wash their feet, feed their donkeys. It's just like really hospitable. And then he prepares this big feast for all of them. It is a very surprising turn of events, but it gets stranger. He has all of the brothers seated in order of birth, oldest to youngest, and they're like, how, this is weird, how could anyone know this? And they can't help but notice that Benjamin, down at the end of the table, has five times as much food as anyone else, because he's testing their jealousy. Is this going to bother them? Apparently not. The text just says they ate and drank and we're merry with him. It's so strange. Everything has gone so bad to this point. And now all of a sudden, everything is going so good. They were like strangers, but now they're merry with him. So what's going on with all this kindness? Uh, two things. Uh, first one, really quickly. It's a little bit of an aside, but kind, God's kindness, God's blessing, his grace in our lives is often a way of alerting us to guilt that we're carrying around. And the way that it alerts us to that is, is whether or not we have a hard time receiving his kindness. All right, so if you're the kind of person that when good things happen to you, when blessing comes your way, you're just suspicious of it, like, what is this? This is like a setup for some bad thing that's around the corner. That might be a sign that you're, you've got some guilt that you need to deal with. It's not always the reason. We, we have a hard time with good things for lots of reasons, but that's one reason. And it's worth asking the question. I knew a guy um, who met this wonderful girl 
and they were going to get married, and he started having these terrible dreams, I mean, really, like, demonic dreams, and he was like, I don't know what's going on. I was like, I have no clue either, but you should just start telling me everything. <laughs> Let's try to figure this out. And he's like, there's stuff I don't want to tell you. I was like, well, then that's it. So <laughs> tell me that. Turns out he had um, some really dark stuff in his past. I mean, stuff that was uh, embarrassing at the very least, but illegal and would have, still might have consequences if he came clean with it. And it was all coming to the surface at the prospect of, of getting this good gift of a great girl. That's what was bringing it all up. He was having such a hard time feeling like it was okay to marry this person because of all this guilt he had about his past. I was like, well, man, what do you want? You want to hide or do you want the girl? He's like, I want the girl. And so he came clean, and it was unbelievably hard, unbelievably embarrassing, but it totally worth it. That set that guy free. He became a great husband. Uh, he became, uh, his, his spiritual life blossomed. He, just, he had been so hindered by this. This kindness is meant to bring us to repentance. Now, here's the other thing that's going on. The kindness that God shows in this story is part of a process by which he's breaking down the brothers. Uh, Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, says that uh, it is the alternating sun and frost that is breaking open their hearts to God. And so there's this harsh treatment and there's this kind treatment. It's going back and forth in the soil. This tough soil in these brothers' hearts is beginning to loosen because of it. You see this in the narrative. They're going to Canaan and back to Egypt. They're appearing before their dad and then before their brother Joseph. Things are going great and then they're going terrible. They're, they're like strangers. They're feasting together. All of this back and forth and up and down becomes really disorienting in their lives. And they sort of, it gets them out of their comfort zone and they sort of lose control of the narrative. They don't know how to spin anymore and it just breaks them down. Here we begin to see kind of the back and forth of testing and kindness. So they're at the feast. Everything's great. And they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to go now. We're going to take Benjamin and Simeon. <laughs> going to head back. Everything cool? Joseph's like, go. So now, now Joseph goes to his stewards again. He's like, all right, take my cup, my silver cup, which is a very valuable, priceless thing. Put it in the youngest one's sack without them knowing. So the brothers are headed back to Canaan thinking everything's good. We got everybody. We're going home. And before they can get very far, Joseph's men overtake them. And they're like, how could you do such a thing? Why would you steal the silver cup? And they're like, what are you talking about? And, and they're so sure they didn't do it, they speak up, and they're like, you know what? Search our sacks. Whoever has it, he'll be your slave. And so they search from the oldest down to the youngest, and they finally get to Benjamin's sack, the favored one, and he has the cup. Chapter 44, uh, verse 12 says this, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to Egypt the third time. I think by this point, it's just like, you know what? <laughs> I can't do this anymore. I just can't do it anymore. Look at verse 16. They're ready to give up. Judah says, and he kind of speaks for the brothers a lot. He comes before Joseph, and he says, what should we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? 
God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, he's talking about the cup, uh, but there's lots of reasons to, to believe that the, the narrator is really trying to tell us he's talking about a lot more than the cup. He's talking about what happened with Joseph. There's no reason for him to go into details because he doesn't know he's talking to Joseph. He thinks Joseph is dead. But he's bringing it all out now. And then he says, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and the one in whom the cup's hand was found. And here's another little bit of kindness from Joseph. He's like, no, 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 that's too much. Not all of you, just the one who had the cup. The rest of you can go free. So now you begin to see this mingling of kindness and testing because that didn't feel too kind to them. The prospect of going home to dad and saying, we lost the other son that you love. (laughs) They just couldn't do it. And so Judah comes close to Joseph and he speaks to him. And now, now here's what's happening. Joseph is testing their loyalty. He's telling them, you can go free if you just give up Benjamin. And it's the same situation they were in before. Give up Joseph and they go free. They make up a story. It's, it's masterfully orchestrated. But, but Judah doesn't want to live this way anymore, so we begin to see his repentance. He comes to Joseph. He confesses the story that they had told their dad about Joseph being toward, torn to, wild, to pieces by a wild animal. And Joseph didn't know that, so he's, he's bringing out more details. He shows compassion for his dad. This dad they've been lying to for 20 years. He's like, look, fine. He shows favoritism. I can accept that. I can deal with it. I can't, what I can't deal with is bringing more grief upon my dad's head. And so he tells Joseph, I just, I can't do this to the old man. He shows compassion for him. And then finally, Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin. So, 44, verse 33. He says, Now, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. And now Joseph can't handle it anymore. He totally loses it, breaks down, and you could see how all that plays out next week. But this is what Joseph has been waiting for. He's been waiting to see, is it for real? He's been wanting to reveal himself all along. He's been trying to control his emotions, but he couldn't do it until Judah did what he did. This had to happen first. Now, we can learn from Judah. We can see uh, the consequences of living a lie. We can decide with Judah that we just... We don't want to go on living that way and we can come clean. We can, we can get it off our chest and clear our conscience. That, that's one application of the story. It's a good one. You should do that. That may clear our conscience, but we need more than a clear conscience. We need a clean conscience. We need to be cleansed deep down and we can only be cleansed by God. We can't clean ourselves. This is what God says. First John, he says, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we don't have sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. How do we get cleansed? By the blood of Christ. Jesus had to die and shed his blood to deal with our guilt. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. I think when we see Judah offering himself in the place of Benjamin, it is pointing to the one who would come from the tribe of Judah, who would not only offer himself but give himself up to the point of death so that guilty sinners could be cleansed and be free from their guilt. We, through Jesus, have been reconciled to God and to one another. We're we're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how God can enter into our life as a father, not out to get us, but to discipline and to restore us. This is how we know that the trials and the consequences and the testing is not punishment. It's salvation. It's fellowship. It's goodness. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.